Welcome to another inspirational message from the chapel. We pray this message encourages and inspires you. If you would like any more information, check out our website, thechapelcollective.com.au. We have been working through parables of the Bible, and we're jumping back in today with the parable of the wise and the foolish builders. Now, this parable is found in both Luke and in Matthew, so you can read it in Luke 6 or Matthew 7. But I'm going to read the Luke version today, which is Luke 6, verses 46 to 49, where Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They are like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on the rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. Now, I'm not going to read the Matthew version, but I would encourage you to read it in Matthew 7 as well. But we're presented here with two scenarios, or these two builders, one wise and one foolish. The wise builder builds his house on the rock. He hears the words of Jesus and puts them into practice. The foolish builder also hears the words of Jesus, but he does not put them into practice. He builds his house on the sand. Now, for those of us who grew up in Sunday school, many of us were raised on this parable, telling us that if we're wise, we'll build our lives on Jesus, and if we're foolish, we'll turn our backs on Jesus. But as I reread this parable, something really interesting strikes me. In fact, both types of builder, both the wise and the foolish builder, hear the words of Jesus. So what is the distinction here between wisdom and folly? It's not to hear or not hear. To hear the words of Jesus and put them into practice is what's counted as wisdom. Now Jesus gives this parable as the very last recorded portion of his Sermon on the Mount. And he makes the conclusion of this sermon with the parable of the two builders. Now anyone who's done essay writing knows that your conclusion is your chance to wrap up everything that you've just said and consolidate your most important point. So this parable is important. And Jesus' message in his Sermon on the Mount was revolutionary. It was countercultural for the time. To hearts that were bound in legalism, devoid of grace, Jesus commanded us not to judge. Stop focusing on the speck in others' eyes and think about the log in your own eye. In other words, stop fixating on what others need to do to be better or what you need to do to fix them. Instead, work on your own heart before God and with God. And to a spirit of performance-based religion, Jesus, Jesus told us to check our motives. He said, store up treasures in heaven instead of seeking man's approval. And he wrapped up his Sermon on the Mount by saying that if we listen to all these words that have come before and then go out and put them into practice, we will be like the wise builder who built his house on the rock that when the storm hits is unshakable. He also told us that it's possible to hear these words, to be in church, to go through all the right motions yet still have a spiritual house that collapses the minute trouble strikes. I think I'd like to choose the unshakable house, thanks. Now, Pastor Daz shared with us last week about the statistics from the most recent census about Christianity and the decline in Australia, which has accelerated over the last 20 years. Now, in my own life, I can identify, as I'm sure many of us can, friends who were once passionate about their faith, totally committed to Christ, who now want nothing to do with him. And when I see these friends completely turn their back on their faith, all I can think is, there but by the grace of God go I. 
It would be foolish for any of us to think that we are immune to this falling away, that it would never happen to us. So in a culture that's ever shifting away from God, knowing that we're not immune, how can we vaccinate our hearts? Am I allowed to say vaccinate yet? <laughs> how can we fortify ourselves to stand unshakable? I would say that there are three realities that fortify our spiritual house. That's intentionality, regularity, and collegiality. You see, living unshakable takes intentionality. It will not happen by accident. Now, I'm not saying that we all have to go out and do a master's in theology. We'll leave that to Andrew. But how can we put the words of God into practice if we don't know what they are? It's like assembling an Ikea flat pack. It always pays to read the instruction manual first. Don't try and assemble your life without reading the instruction manual because you'll end up with pegs in all the wrong places and a screw loose. The instruction manual is God's word. But how do we position our hearts to hear God's word? Well, what do we know about the voice of God? We know that it's a still small voice. We know that God says in Psalm 46 to be still and know that I am God. So to hear God's voice, we need to turn down the noise of our busy lives we need to be proactive to create space to listen to God. And that, that takes discipline. We need to carve out space to read our Bible. Now, for me, that space is best first thing in the morning before the distractions of the day begin. But you might find a different time works for you. And it's okay to need help with this. It's okay to use Bible study tools. In fact, our QR code has links to some really great resources to help you with this. I use a journal to help me keep my mind from wandering. And believe me, I have heard and probably used every excuse under the sun as to why it didn't happen today. You know, I slept through my alarm. Kids woke up too early. This season of life's just too busy. My social media feed was too distracting. Dog ate my Bible. There is no denying it takes discipline and it takes self-control to keep the noise out and keep your spirit tuned in. But the thing about it is the more you do it, the easier it gets. And it's often starting that's the hardest part. Now, for those of us who have children who live at home, having young children can make it really difficult to create quiet space. I totally acknowledge this because I live this. But we are role modelling to our children how to do life and how to do faith. God calls us his sheep and sheep follow the shepherd. But lambs follow sheep until they learn to follow the shepherd. And the greatest gift that you can give to your child is to demonstrate and model regular time with God. Because what you demonstrate is what they will emulate. And whatever season you're in, if you immerse yourself in the word of God and you'll find wisdom for every single one of life's challenges. Theodore Roosevelt said that a thorough knowledge of the Bible is worth more than a college education. So living unshakable takes intentionality. But it also takes regularity. Now I want to continue with this builder's metaphor. And when you build a house, you can guarantee that there is always something more that needs to be done. And just when you think you've got it right, the hot water system breaks or there's a massive downpour and you find a leak in the wall. And yes, these are personal examples. But homes take never-ending maintenance. You can't just build your house and forget about it. You have to maintain it forevermore. Our spiritual houses are no different. We can't just rest on our laurels because we used to read our Bible and pray once upon a time. There is no static when it comes to your faith walk. You're either moving forward or you're moving backwards. And regular time with God is the most important thing you can do to strengthen your faith and keep yourself moving forward. 
Now, I'm going to say something maybe a little controversial here, but is probably the most important thing that I'll say this morning. And that is that, yes, being in church is fantastic to support and encourage one another and to learn, but you can't outsource your spiritual growth to your church or your pastor. I'm going to say that one more time because I think this is really something that we need to hang on to. You can't outsource your spiritual growth to your church or your pastor. It doesn't work like that. You can't outsource your faith to a great podcast or a Christian book either. These are all fantastic resources. I'm not saying that these are not great things, but they're not a substitute for time with God, time in God's word, time in prayer. Nobody else can listen to God for you because it's in that space that we get to meet with our creator. And he has something to say that is just for you, which is different to what he has to say, which is just for me. And when we deign to make time in our busy schedules to listen to him, we get to hear what he'd have to say to us. It says in Hebrews 4.16, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we can receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So let's come before God to find mercy and grace and then repeat and repeat and repeat. Billy Graham said it beautifully. He said, the very practice of reading the Bible will have a purifying effect upon your mind and heart. Let nothing take the place of this daily exercise. So living unshakable takes intentionality, it takes regularity, and it takes collegiality. Now, when the hot water system in my house broke, I didn't get the pliers and start cutting wires because I could very easily electrocute myself. Now, I messaged Ryan Alderton. I talked to someone who has experience in the field. Now, while you can't outsource your faith to someone else, it doesn't mean you can't ask for help. It says in Galatians 6 verse 2, to carry each other's burdens. Proverbs 27 tells us that as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another person. It says in Hebrews 10, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. So to build an unshakable faith, surround yourself with people who challenge and encourage you, and then go out and challenge and encourage. Just as I seek wise counsel when my physical house needs maintenance, how much more should I seek wise counsel in the maintenance of my spiritual house? It is a gift from God to have a few trusted people in your life that you know will support you and pray with you through every circumstance and sometimes even give you the strong word that you need. And you never know how the experience that you're going through right now might be preparing you to minister to someone else in the future. So when we have intentionality, regularity and collegiality in listening to God's word and putting it into practice, we build a spiritual house that's unshakable when the storm hits. Now I want to come back to the parable because Jesus didn't say if the storm hit. He said when the storm hit. I hope you'll all forgive me for being a little self-indulgent here and sharing some holiday photos from our recent trip to Italy. Um, As part of this holiday, we took a four-day hike through the Dolomites, walking eight to nine hours a day. As you might expect, a lot of people thought we were insane to do this with a three- and a six-year-old. They might have been correct. In typical mountain fashion, the weather in the morning was beautiful and sunny, like you can see in the photo up here. But as the day would go on, the thunderstorms would start to build up and there was this daily challenge to try and get to our next shelter before the storm hit going at a six-year-old pace. Now, on the next photo, you're going to see this red arrow, the, the pass that we had to walk through to get to our next shelter and the accommodation for that night. We had about a three-hour walk ahead of us at this point and we got about halfway up that walk when up from the right came a thunderstorm 
and we're sort of on the, on the side of the mountain, it's totally exposed and the wind is howling, it's cold, the thunders is going right overhead of us, it's raining and the boys are crying and we're wondering in that moment whether, whether we'd made a very bad decision to come and do this hike. But we took the opportunity to stop with the boys in that moment and pray that God would protect us and pray with them that he would keep us safe from the storm. When we were totally at the mercy of the elements, all we could do was trust in God to protect us. And then once we prayed, we kept walking, trudging more like. The boys were crying, but they learned a very valuable lesson that day about pushing on through adversity, trusting God and persisting when life gets tough. I tell myself that they learned a valuable lesson that day. But the amazing thing was that as we got closer and closer to that mountain, the more the mountain actually created shelter for us and the worst of the storm passed around the mountain and off behind us. The storm was actually blocked by the mountain and went off to the side. And as we got in towards the mountain, the wind settled and became calm. And then when we came down the other side, the sun came out. We made sure to stop and thank God in that moment. When Jesus talks about the wise and the foolish builders, he says when the flood came, not if. The storm hit both the wise builder and the foolish builder, the house on the rock and the house on the sand. The storm itself was the same for both of them. The difference was that the house on the rock could not be shaken. Adversity is not a sign that God is not with you. Adversity is not a sign that you've done something wrong. We live in a fallen world and bad things happen. God never actually told Job why hardship came. He reminded Job of who he is in the midst of it. And my ability to withstand life's storms has nothing to do with who I am and everything to do with who God is. The wise and foolish builders both set out with the same skill set, the same raw materials, the same equipment, the same budget. Yet one house fell while the other stood firm. And the difference was the foundation, not the house. Now we look in our culture and we talk a lot in our culture about teaching people to be resilient in times of adversity. And don't get me wrong, resilience is a fantastic quality. But it misses the mark. It implies that our ability to withstand the storms of life lies in some internalised quality, some special type of cement or brick that holds the house together. Now, our ability to withstand the storm has nothing to do with who I am and everything to do with who God is as the foundation on which I stand. When we were caught in the storm on the side of this mountain, my ability to not get struck by lightning was nothing to do with my ability as a hiker, my resilience or some special lightning-proof boots you can buy at Kathmandu. Now, in that moment, we were helpless in our own strength and our safety had nothing to do with our ability and everything to do with the mountain that protected us. And the closer we pushed into that mountain, the safer and the more sheltered we became. Psalm 121 says, I lift my eyes to the mountain. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. When the storm hits in life, we press into God. We pray, we commit our way to him, we hang on to his words. And just like we had to do on the side of the mountain, once we've done that, we just keep walking. Sometimes it's a trudge, but we just keep putting one foot in front of the other, pressing in towards that mountain. Psalm 121 goes on to say, He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life, over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. And if you're in the centre of God's will, you're in the safest place you can be. So if we want to be the wise builder, what do we do? We hear the words of God and put them into practice. Now, we talked today about the importance of immersing ourselves in the word of God and surrounding ourselves with godly people as a wise course of action. 
But remember that all through his ministry, Jesus looked at the motives of people's hearts. So I'm going to wrap up soon, but I don't think we can stop before we explore the motive as to why do we do this. We don't spend time in God's word to somehow earn God's love. God's love for us is unconditional whether we touch the Bible or not. We don't spend time with God so that God will pat us on the head and call us a good little Christian. We don't spend time with God because we're afraid that he'll be angry or disappointed with us if we don't. This kind of thinking is all backwards and we call it performance-based Christianity and it's exactly the kind of thought process that comes naturally to us in our humanness. But it's also the thought process that Jesus tipped on its head when he taught us grace. And the more we spend time with him, the more we start to understand and receive that grace. Think about the greatest hero you can imagine, the person that you'd most like to emulate in all the world. For me, let's say Pastor Bron. You can choose whoever you'd like. What if that person contacted you and told you that they wanted to have a regular catch-up with you for the sole purpose of mentoring you? What if Wayne Bennett rang up Lockie Bennell and said, hey, Lockie, I want to spend regular one-on-one time with you for the sole purpose of helping you with your footy skills? And what if Lockie said, oh, thanks, man, I'm just a bit busy at the moment? What if the God of the universe who breathed the world into existence, who holds the stars in his hand, who is unfathomable and infinite, who created us and understands us better than we understand ourselves. What if that God contacted us and told us he wanted to have a regular catch-up with us for the sole purpose of helping us be the best people we can be? In fact, what if he told us he'd sacrificed his own son to make that possible? And then what if we said, sorry, I'm just a bit busy right now? Or actually, my self-help podcast's pretty good, so I'm all good, thanks, God. Or I'm not really a reader, so the Bible's not for me. Or I'm not a morning person. When we give these or any other excuse to God, it's not like God's sitting up in heaven as the disappointed, angry headmaster because we've not done our homework. Now, he's the father who longs to relate to us, to connect with us, to help us. And when we ignore him, he's the father whose heart breaks because he knows we're missing out on the best thing we could do in our lives. We spend time with God because when we fathom who he is and what he has done and that he wants us to know him, how could we not? We spend time with God because we recognise that without him regularly speaking into our lives, our walls very quickly come crumbling down. Sometimes it takes discipline to get going, there's no denying that. But we recognise that we are better when we put God at the centre and that is when we become unshakable. Heavenly Father, we thank you today. Thank you for every single person in the room. And Lord, as I preach these few minutes and these words, uh, we're looking for you, Holy Spirit. We're looking for you to um, grab our hearts. Grab our hearts today, Lord, in a way that they say yes in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. All right. Take a seat. And uh, just want to mention um, Catalyst Offering before, uh, before I go. I just need about three minutes um, on that. Just to say, if you weren't here last week, we talked about Catalyst Offering. This year's Catalyst Offering uh, is going towards... First part, if we get there, is going towards um, paying for the roof that we went ahead and did in a pandemic, and we just need to replace that um, that money, the money for next door. The reason we went ahead and did it, one, the buildings were closed, um, and number two, they told us if we don't, the price will double, which it has. Um, it actually went up $50,000 just in the period when we are getting from quote to finish. And uh, so we, we want to sort that as part of moving forward. Probably the bigger news we mentioned, that building next door, we really want to commit it before God to seeding the renewal of the next generation. And 
And it already does. It already does. If you're here on a Friday night, it's absolute chaos. And I love that it's chaos. Uh, I never come in the building. It's too chaotic. But I sit out in my car and I watch the traffic jam unfold every Friday night. And then, of course, on Sundays as well. We're already doing that. We want to build on that. And I can tell you what we're pursuing right now and have been for about a year in the background is turning next door, not only into a Friday and Sunday venture, but um, an overtly, I haven't got better language yet, preschool and early learning centre that is Christian-based. We we want kids to leave, uh, sorry if I can put it like this, my grandparents went to Sunday school, their generation. One third of them went and heard Billy Graham speak. Um, uh, My generation didn't go to Sunday school, but we did go to Scripture. Um, I'm two generations removed. If you point two generations forward, it's the kids being born now. And uh, they neither go to Sunday school in large numbers and they have to opt into Scripture. And so we want to do something about it, one castle at a time, starting here in Tamworth. And um, we're committed to the process and God willing we'll get there. And so I'd ask you to think about how you're going to give to that. We, We need to do something for this generation. We need to do it right now. And uh, if climate change is a bigger deal, their soul's bigger. There is no bigger deal on the planet than the human soul and their eternity. And so we want kids to leave that um, part of their education knowing God and knowing that he's good um, and, and essentially having heard the gospel and uh, with a, um, inclined to pray just in the privacy of their own room, just inclined to pray. I reckon God can work with that. And uh, my daughter was telling me just the other day a story of a girl whose mother had taught her to pray. She came along to youth group, not a Christian family, came along to youth group, then went along to their camp in the second worship time at their camp, said, I've never felt love like that in my life. I can't explain it. Surrendered, this is just in the last few weeks, surrendered her life to Jesus, brought her parents the next week. Her dad's now committed his life to Jesus. A praying child with a basic knowledge of God is a seed that God can use. And I think that you and I should invest our very finest in playing our part and seeing that happen. So just encourage you around that. You can um, hit the QR code, whatever you need to do. Um, and uh, I can tell you what we do. We, we give an amount up front and then we pay an amount weekly or fortnightly or however we're paid. I've got no idea. Um, uh, until December because then December Christmas comes and I'm going to spend it all on my kids. So... Leave you with it. No pressure, lots of opportunity. What's God stirring in your heart? Uh, Here's the question as we uh, uh, talk. Here we go. How would you know that something is a genuine move of God? How how would you know that? Um, I don't know about you. I'm sure you're like me. If you're a Christian, you want to be part of something that is a genuine move of God. Like I've been praying that prayer since I was 21 years old. I want to be part of what God's doing, where God's moving. And, and if you are a Christian, because uh, if you're not, that's a foreign idea to you. If you are a Christian, could you recognise that? Uh, sorry, if you could recognise that, would you actively join it? If you could see and sense that this, whatever it is, is a move of God, that God's at work in it, that God's moving in a space or through a thing, if you could see and sense that, would you then actively join it, like become part of it? Because what we know from Scripture is that the God of the Bible has plans and purposes that he is bringing to pass and he's doing it in and through people. That's how he does it for the most part. He's bringing it to pass in and through people like you and I. And so I think that's extraordinary. I remember getting to 21 years old and thinking, 
that the idea struck me that God might use me and that God might do something in my lifetime and with our days and that we might actually affect some people's lives and eternities and churches and all of that kind of thing. And I thought, oh, what an incredible thought that God might do that. And then I'm not just here to fulfill the Old Testament Ten Commandments. God partners with his people. So how do you know that something is a genuine move of God? And if you could recognise it, would you actively join it? I want to take you to Ezra chapter 1 and I want to just give you in the minutes that we have four signs of a move of God. And I've tested this against countless examples in Scripture. So it's, it's not the only way, but it is a way. Here are four signs that you and I could know something. is a genuine move of God and then answer the question, will I join it? Ezra chapter 1 verse 1 to 7. In the first year of Cyrus, or King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord fulfilled his prophecy he had given through Jeremiah. So 150 years earlier, the Bible records a prophecy that we won't read in this service about, about Cyrus the Great and what he will do for a God he neither serves nor knows. Cyrus gets hold of this prophecy. It says, He stirred the heart of Cyrus to put this proclamation in writing and to send it throughout his kingdom. And at that time, the, uh, you can read any old historical or history book, Cyrus' kingdom was the largest empire in the world up until that time. And so this is what King Cyrus of Persia says, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has appointed me to build him a temple at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Any of you who are his people may go up to Jerusalem in Judea to rebuild the temple of the Lord. Um, the God of Israel who lives in Jerusalem. And may your God be with you. Wherever this Jewish remnant is found, let their neighbours contribute towards their expenses by giving them silver and gold, supplies for the journey and livestock, as well as a voluntary offering for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then God stirred the heart of the priests and Levites and the leaders of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin to go to Jerusalem to build the temple of the Lord. And all their neighbours assisted by giving them articles of silver and gold, supplies for the journey and livestock. They gave them many valuable gifts in addition to all the voluntary offerings. King Cyrus himself brought out the articles that King Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the Lord's table in Jerusalem and a temple and placed in the temple of his own gods. What we see here is the beginning of an absolute move of God. Here are the four signs of a move of God. Number one, God will just move the heart of a person for purpose. In the first year of King Cyrus, the Lord fulfilled his prophecy through Jeremiah. He stirred the heart of Cyrus. And, and right across history, that's how God will do it, right? He'll, he'll stir the heart of a leader. He'll stir the heart of a person. And, and in this case, he raises up Cyrus, but... In other times, he raised up Nehemiah and he raised up Esther and he raised up Daniel and he raised up David and he raised up Saul and he raised up Samuel and he raised up the Apostle Paul and he raised up you and he raised up all kinds of people right across the earth, right until this day, maybe even in this town. And that's what God does. That's what he does. And he uses kings and he uses priests and he uses prophets and teachers and pastors and evangelists and he uses servants and government officials and he uses all kinds of people to get done what he's going to do. He raises a person for purpose. And that's what he did with Cyrus. If God wants to get something done, he'll often move the heart of a person for purpose. God moves the heart. And where you see God move the heart of a person with purpose, we should just at least watch this space. That's number one. Here's number two. God gives favour. God gives favour. If God is on the move 
at some point you'll see his favour break through. You'll see his favour attached. Listen again to Ezra. Um, Any of you who are his people may go up to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. That's, that was incredible favour in that context. King Cyrus himself brought out the articles um, that King Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the Lord's temple in Jerusalem and he returned them. They're just God-given favour for God-appointed purpose. And that's, you'll, you'll see that. Uh, last week I showed an image, some of you will remember it, the black and white image of a Billy Graham um, meeting here in Australia in 1959, this jam-packed crowd. And I don't know if you know the story, you know, but Billy Graham, I think it's 1949, Billy Graham is preaching some meetings he's about to wrap up in LA, California, in a tent. In those days they do tent meetings because they were, that's how they created big enough venues. Anyway, te- Billy Graham was doing tent meetings and he was just about to wrap them up. And William Randolph Hearst, William Randolph Hearst was the Rupert Murdoch of the time. He owned, at one point, he owned more media outlets in the United States than anybody else. He was not a godly man. He made no claim to be. He didn't know Billy Graham. But one morning, he sent a telegram to all his outlets, and it simply said one line, blow up Billy Graham. And from that moment on, all of his media outlets began to promote Billy Graham around the nation of America. And for the next half a century, Billy Graham preached the message of the gospel, the message of Jesus, to more people than any person who's ever lived in the history of humanity. God-given favour that just found Billy Graham for a gospel purpose. And I think one of the signs is favour. You look around and go, where where is favour on that thing? At some point, often it's all hidden as hard work, but there'll be moments of favour on a thing. Um, When I think about life, when I think about church, um, churches that we lead or even beyond, well beyond here, uh, you can pin and go, that was favour. That could only have been God. It could only be God. We're not that clever. We're not that smart. Our best strategic plan on his best day ever is only as good as God building his house. And so favour, where do you see favour? God appointed person, God given favour on a thing, it can make all the difference. And so just as a side note there, if you live with favour, I've seen something interesting around people who seem to have favour on their life. I've seen people start out living with incredible favour who waste it. And your job and my job is to steward it. Our job is to stay humble in it. I've written here, stewarding favour will require unceasing humility. You can begin to take the credit for what you were never responsible for takes unceasing humility and uh, I don't know about you but I never want to be arrogant about what was never me. I want to keep a soft heart and so if God has entrusted you with something that has incredible favour on it, may you steward it well, may you live with unceasing humility, may you just keep it before God and the effect because the effect of favour I think makes us vulnerable to pride, makes us vulnerable to arrogance. That's my observation watching people live under favour. And so my encouragement to you today, if you know that God's favour is on your life for a person, may you continue to live with unceasing humility in that space and never, ever let um, ourselves be overtaken with arrogance in any way. Keep coming back to humility. Keep violently opposed to any arrogance in us. Always remember where favour comes from and never forget what favour's for. It's not about you. It's not about me. 
You know, I, I have this prayer I've prayed since I was 21. You know, when Joseph comes before, he's in power in Pharaoh's courts and his brothers finally come before him and he can, he can abuse the situation or he can do what God has appointed him to do. And I remember reading that and going, God, I want to be that man. I want you to be able to trust me with anyone, anything, anywhere, any scale, and that I will not leverage it in any way for my benefit. That it just simply passes through my heart and my hands and the season that I've got so that you get it to where you want. And that's what you and I, it's their favour on your life. Steward it well. Keep a humble heart. Don't let arrogance get in in any way. Don't keep it to yourself in any way. Let's steward it for what it's purpose for and what God's called us to. Amen. Number three, four signs of a move of God. Number three says this. Then God stirred the hearts of the priests and Levites and the leaders of the tribe of Judah and Benjamin to go to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple of the Lord. I'm not well. I need a breath. God stirred the hearts. God stirred the hearts of people to go and rally together to what he was going to do. Number three is God rallies the willing. God God will always rally the willing. Truth is not everybody is willing, right? In the time of Nehemiah, he rallies the hearts of the people. What becomes a move of God that is hidden is hard work. And not everyone responds. I mean, it's a move of God that hasn't happened in 100 years and not everybody responds. Some opt out, some give excuses, some oppose it. Imagine, imagine being right in the middle of a move of God and you miss it. That would be insane. And so God rallies the willing. And, and so I love that. I, I, I love it. I love around here that many of you have been the willing. You know, I'm watching Evan over there this morning with Jason and the coffee machine won't work. And you go, well, who cares about a coffee machine? Well, it's not really about the coffee machine, is it? Well, it is for me, guys, just so you know. But they, it's about their heart for God. It's about their heart for God's people. And so while you and I are sitting here listening to this most incredible message you've ever heard, they, they're over there working away for yours and my sake. I love that God rallies the hearts of his people to do all kinds of things. And so let's continue to be those people. Number four today, four signs of a move of God. God releases his resources, says this, and all their neighbours assisted by giving them the articles of silver and gold, supplies for the journey and livestock. They gave them many valuable gifts. I wonder what that would be for you and for me. Many valuable gifts. In addition to all the voluntary offerings, King Cyrus himself brought out the articles that King Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the Lord's temple. He restored them to Jerusalem. And, and I think this here, this what we see here, this is a theme of return and renewal and revival right through Scripture. You, you'll, you'll oftentimes see that the movers God is accompanied by the outpouring of generosity from God's people. And they often go together. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you and I have heard people say, well, it's not about buildings, Darren. And I know it's not about buildings. But God rallies his people to restore his temple because the temple has a purpose for his people and for his glory. And so, so often where we see God at work, that'll, that'll be the case. And, but what I love here is that there were people on the front line and there were people contributing to the storehouse. There were people on the front line and there were people contributing to the storehouse. And, and, and God rallies them both in this moment. And this is what happens when the front line and the storehouse come together in a powerful way. 
And so thinking about all of this, four signs of a move of God, how would you know that something is a genuine move of God? Well, God moves the heart of a person for purpose. God gives grants favour um, on what they're doing. God rallies the hearts of the willing and God releases his resources to get done what he wants to get done, his resources in the hands of his people. And so as we wrap here today, if you look at that, where do, where do you see that going on in your life? Where do you see that happening? Um, where, do you, where would you say, oh, that is a genuine move of God? Genuine moves of God are often hidden as hard work with favour attached. Where do you see that happening? And, and if you see that happening, may we be like Nehemiah where he said, hey, here's the favour of God upon me. The king was good to me. Let us come and rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so we'll no longer be in disgrace. He told them about the gracious hand of God on him and what the king had said to him. And they replied, let us rise and build. They replied, and, and that's my question. Where, where you see or sense a move of God, what's the reply of your heart? Is it let us rise and build? And so uh, as I wrap this today, may that be our heart. May that be how we live. May that be the response to God where we see him moving and at work. Lord, let us rise and build together. And I thank God for every person in this room and the next one to come that has said in their heart and sensed that what God's doing in this community is something that they have replied and said, yes, Lord, let us rise and build in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. God bless you. Hey again, thanks so much for joining us on this podcast. Whether you are new and exploring your faith or a follower of Jesus, there's a next step for you. There is always room to grow, more to be done, destiny to be pursued and people to be reached. So what's your next step? To find out, head over to thechapelcollective.com.au And thanks again for listening.